Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. It's Wednesday night and it's time for Friends in Fiction. So let's get rolling. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we're so happy to be welcoming Sarah Pekinen, author of Gone Tonight, and Etoff Rum, author of Evil Eye. <laughs> and we are so all so tremendously grateful to all of you out there who have supported us in our book launches this year. It really means the world. And of course, you know that underlying everything that we do is our mission to help support indie booksellers. One way you can help us to do that is to buy from them when and where you can or to visit our own Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page where you can find Sarah's and Etoff's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. Speaking of amazing books, don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa. Be sure to be with them on September 28th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for the Zibby Books preview party with Emma Gray, Patty Lynn, and Michelle Wildgren. And their selection for their October 16th meeting is The Followers by Brady Godfrey. Now, drum roll. Without further ado, let's welcome Sarah Beckenen. Sarah is the number one New York Times bestselling co-author of several novels of suspense, including The Golden Couple and The Wife Between Us. She is also the author of eight USA Today and internationally bestselling solo novels, including The Opposite of Me, Skipping a Beat, and These Girls. Her books have been translated into dozens of languages. In her free time, which I don't know how she has any because she's writing her single books <laughs> and her know. co-author books, we're going to ask her about that. Sarah is a dedicated volunteer for rescue animals and serves as ambassador, am, mm -hmm, that word, ambassador <laughs> for RRSA India, working hands-on to vaccinate and heal street dogs in India. She lives just, I know, she lives just outside of Washington, D.C. with her family. Her new thriller that we're going to be talking about, oh, with that amazing cover. cover. Yeah, it sure so is. So good. It's yeah. so chilly. Mm -hmm. Her new thriller, Gone Tonight, was just published last month. And author Colleen Hoover, co-ho, said it was <laughs> riveting, original, and powerful. Juan, can you please bring Sarah on? Hi, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Hi. I am so happy to be here with the four of you. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, we're so, so glad to see you. Well, we're excited that you're here. You know, Gone Tonight had me on pins and needles the whole time I was reading it, which was always at night in bed. Uh, in fact, several times I would dog ear the book, turn off the light, and then 10 minutes later, much to my husband's chagrin, <laughs> 
back on because I had to know <laughs> what is going on. What is going to happen next? I had to know about this mother-daughter daughter duo, Ruth and Catherine. Now, we know from the start that this book is about the secrets we keep from the ones we love most. But what would you say Gone Tonight is really about? Mm, good question. I think um, sort of on a broader level, it's about love, control, protection, and really how far would you go to protect the ones you love most? What would you do? Would you do the unthinkable? Would you do the unspeakable? Mm-hmm. So as, as you mentioned, it's a mother-daughter story. And my main character, Ruth, is doing what she thinks is necessary to protect her grown daughter, Catherine. Wow. So Ruth and her daughter, Catherine, are fascinating characters, and they're each hiding their own truths or hiding their secrets. So how did you unpeel those layers? So in other words, without any spoilers, how early in the writing process did you know all those secrets? Did you have them lined up? Did they unfold as you were writing? How did you do that? (laughs) Oh, thank you. You know, I generally need to know where I'm going in a book before I write it, because then it helps me do things like, you know, foreshadow, whatever it is. If I figure things out along the way, like some authors who say, you know, I just have a great character and I follow the character wherever they're going to take me. That doesn't work for me. I tend to write myself in a corner. So I really do need to have like an outline, you know, a synopsis, just knowing where I'm going, maybe not the exact route to getting there, but I do need to know some of the twists in advance so I can build toward them. And then other twists actually take me by surprise. And that's one Mm -hmm. of the best parts of the writing process and with my characters Ruth and Karen so um, Ruth and Catherine the the book is narrated by both it's alternating chapters with the mother Ruth who is a 42 year old waitress Uh, she's dropped out of high school she has a 24 year old daughter named Catherine so you know you do the math Ruth was a teen mom She tells Catherine she was disowned when she got pregnant. Her family was very religious. And so all they've ever had is each other. They uh, live a very nomadic lifestyle. They often have to move with very little notice, sometimes just a few hours notice. Ruth keeps Mm -hmm. a tracker on Catherine's phone, even though Catherine's 24. And uh, Ruth keeps in touch with no one from her past. And so she is telling the reader the truth, and she doesn't like to lie to Catherine. So, you know, she may not always be 100% honest, but she doesn't outright lie about a lot of things with Catherine. But, um, you know, each character, they're supposed to be these women who really know each other best. And in fact, they each have kind of a hidden core that's a mystery to the other. And what I wanted to do is, you know, have both characters narrate so that you could see where they were. Here comes my little rescue dog running into the scene. She'll make an appearance soon. She's quite a ham. Um, but you can see what they were, you know, telling each other what they were thinking. They're both being honest with the reader. But what you don't know, you, you know, danger is coming. You don't know if it's coming from Ruth, the mom, mm-hmm. Catherine, the daughter, or from the outside. Oh, that's so good. And like did this. you know the answer to that 
that it was going to come from Ruth or Catherine or the outside. When you headed into this, did you know the answer to which of those three it was? I did know the answer, but one aspect got amplified during the writing. And again, that's Mm -hmm. like the best part of the writing process. I mean, you guys know this. Some days it's like kind of a slog and we're there Mm -hmm. when we're, you know, we're writing and we're like, everything I'm writing right now is crap. Like nobody's ever going to read this. I'm going to lose my Mm -hmm. publishing contract. It's horrible. It's boring. (laughs) Yes. We know. know. Right? I can't can't relate. Did not do that all day to day. (laughs) Yeah. Never, never heard of such a thing. (laughs) Didn't, didn't reach out for confirmation from my agent that I was still good. (laughs) I hear you, but you know, then it's like, we have these magical times and maybe it's just an hour or whatever it is, or a few hours where it's like, oh, this story's taking over and I'm just hanging on for dear life. And the stuff that happens feels kind of magical and it's writing itself. And if only we could have that every day. You know, I think a lot of people who want to write books imagine it's like that for us every day, Mm -hmm. but it's not. We are like, you know, runners. We're out there slogging it through in the the winter and we're getting splattered with rain and our shins are aching and we're tired. And every now and then we have a perfect Mm -hmm. day of running. It's like yeah. that yes. when we're writing. Wait, are you saying I'm like a runner? <laughs> <laughs> she just said you are a runner is what she said. I thought she <laughs> said I was like a runner. <laughs> it's like that awesome. I think it's like a Picasso quote that says inspiration can strike, but it has to find you working. And I'm like, yep, yeah. I think about that all the time. Oh, I'm like, true. it's not all just going to float into my head magically. Yeah, I mean, I love we, that. we had an interview last week with um, Jessica Ward, J.R. Ward, and she left us all stupefied when she said, yeah, it just unrolls in her head like a movie. Oh, wow. Wouldn't yeah, that, that be was wonderful? Like, yeah. And we were like, what are you talking life? about? We Our dogs were like life. dropped. Um, okay, so um, Sarah, earlier in your career, your novels were categorized as more like contemporary women's fiction but always with a twist and now I know you were a journalist in in your earlier life was there a time that you can pinpoint when you told yourself I think I need to be writing thrillers or I already am writing thrillers and they're not called that how what was that transition you know it was a gradual transition I was writing contemporary women's fiction but I began to like introduce more suspense and kind of a little more darkness into the books as I went along and actually my seventh uh, novel my seventh solo book uh, the perfect neighbors there was a suspicious death in that book and so I was kind of like inching my way towards thrillers and when I look back at what I love to read I I loved reading thrillers like I would devour anything you know Lee Child or Harlan Corbin um, you know anything that that they were writing so I think that was something I was really drawn to Um, and what I'm trying to do now is write a bit more of a hybrid so I'm writing thrillers but I want to get in the relationships and the character development that I love so much in women's fiction so I'm, I'm trying to balance a bit of both right now. Well, that's a really perfect marriage. Yeah, it's right. a tightrope too, yeah. right? Yeah, like, it is. Yeah. Tip this way, tip that way. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you guys know, no matter what kind of books we're writing, we want to make the reader keep reading. You want to get, you know, maybe you're not writing like some, you know, um, shocking, you know, cliffhanger at the end of every chapter, depending on what kind of book you're writing, but you have to have tension. You have to have that kind of sense of unease in, Mm -hmm. in every book. And you guys all do this well. You got to keep them turning the pages. And so it's the same, I think, for any genre. You want to have that quality. Um, and that's something that's just going to serve you well in whatever you do. Yeah, so true. That's such a good Good point. Uh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> well, speaking of good writing tips, I mean, one of the things that I think you do so well and was really noticeable in this novel is how tightly plotted it was. Um, and I think that, you know, kind of comes back to that page turning, but like just in the best possible way. Ruth and Catherine's world is is very small in this book. It's very narrow. It's almost sort of claustrophobic at times. So was this intentional on your part? Completely. I'm so glad you said <laughs> okay. that. You got exactly. If it wasn't, that was offensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got exactly what I was trying to convey, and I'm so glad you did. I wanted it to be that sense of like, you know, they are so close that when Ruth rolls over in bed, Catherine can hear her through the thin apartment wall, you know, that they share meals together. They don't have, you know, they have a small, inexpensive apartment. If they're on the couch, they're kind of head to toe together. There's there's nowhere else to be. And I wanted Catherine, especially at the age of 24, to feel that sense. Like, my mom is hanging on a little too tight. Like, you know, I'm trying to do my own thing, and yet she's always hovering. She's always... You know, when Catherine goes out one night, her mom's checking in with her, sending texts, are you going to be home for dinner? And so I really wanted the reader to feel that, um, that sense with Catherine. And I think, you know, as uh, parents, that's something that, you know, everybody who's a parent has grappled with that line of like love versus control versus protection. And when is, you know, where is the right place to draw that line? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know when you know, tell me. Be- yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Ruth is so obsessed with her daughter. It's, you know, you, you feel this suffocation, like, mm-hmm. and Catherine's, you know, very, a very good sport about it, but you can sense her yeah. impatience. And yeah. her curiosity, yeah. her curiosity, which is very much peaked. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think too, for Catherine, it's like, you know, my mom's always been there. She's always orbiting around me. She never really considered her mom as a woman who had had a whole life, you know, well, not an entire life because she was quite a young mom, but she had had a lot of experiences and a lot of life before Catherine came along. But, you know, for Catherine, it was just kind of like, you're my mom. That's all, all you are. And, you know, for, for Ruth, yeah. And, and Ruth is an invisible woman. Ruth, is a waitress. um, And she will, she says in the book, like I have probably said six times before noon, hi, my name is Ruth and I'll be your server today. And it's a safe bet that five minutes later, not a single person can tell you what my name was. And she enjoys that. Um, She likes being inconspicuous. She needs to be invisible. Um, And I I got, you know, a a tiny little bit of inspiration from Ruth. You know, you guys have probably asked this all the time, too. Like, are your characters ever based on real people? And I don't know if you guys ever do it. I I tend to not, um, not just for legal reasons, just because it would, like, open (laughs) up a whole can of worms. (laughs) 
Um, but Ruth is a, a tiny bit of inspiration for, from her, came from my grandmother who dropped out of high school to help support her family. And um, oh, yeah. she worked as a waitress her entire life. Wow. And she was very ferocious when it came to her kids. She really wanted them to have a better life than she'd had and an easier life. She worked as a waitress, you know, up until she was 70. She was working at a bar, you know, with a grill there and, and you know, running plates. And she always felt like, I want to have my kids do better, do differently, have an easier life. And, you know, my grandma was so smart. Like she could slay you in Scrabble. She would do the crossword <laughs> puzzles and ink. And I always wondered, you know, maybe she would have been a writer if she had had the chance. Or the wow. time. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. What an interesting basis for a character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another thing that I think is notable about this book and without any spoilers is that we get an unusual look into the mind of a killer. And you also drop a little tidbit of trivia that Ted Bundy had a child, which is a fascinating tie-in to Jessica Knoll's new novel, which we'll be discussing mm -hmm. on our show on October 4th. So I, I always love it when we can kind of link episodes with a little, yeah. little piece of something. Um, how did you research the psychology of someone uh, as purely evil as this character and also the possibility mm -hmm. that evil can beget evil? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that line, evil can beget evil. Um, well, it's funny because I, uh, Jessica and I actually had drinks the last time I was in LA and we started talking and she was telling me about the premise for her book, um, you know, uh, Bright Young Women, um, which I was like, that, that just sounds incredible. And then I said, by the way, like, let me show you these lines from my book, um, you know, which talked about the Ted Bundy, uh, you know, having a child and we were just sort of marveling at the coincidence um, yeah. of it. But I, yeah, I, I'm really curious about like, I love to geek out on psychology and what makes us human and, and how are the different forces that shape us, you know, our environment um, versus, versus nature. And there is a link um, to violence. There, there are a lot of genetic links to a lot of different things, and there seems to be a link to uh, deep violence. And I think the environment can, uh, can make a difference, but not necessarily. Um, yeah. So I loved learning a little bit about that. And, you know, with a character in my book, I don't want to say who, like, they could have maybe lived their whole life without realizing they had that thing inside of them that got kind of flipped on like a switch, you know, once yeah. they had a taste of violence. And then when it happened, it was like, oh, this is who I am. This is where I'm meant to be. Like the world went from black and white to color and the world became much more exciting because of the possibilities of violence and, you know, mayhem. Um, so yes, I, I enjoy writing about those things from the safety of my bed, like MKA <laughs> writes from her bed, like my kids <laughs> in bed with my dog and my computer and my coffee. It's fun to imagine all the crazy things. Yeah, That's Sarah awesome. Sarah texted me like 6.30 this morning. Hey, you write in bed too. What about pillows? And I'm like, yes, I'm actually propped up on pillows. <laughs> That's We're going to have like canes in about a week. I mean, my back oh, is already yeah. hurting. Our spines, we need to <laughs> our spines are going to look like S's. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think a chair's any better. Like you're on my neck, Yeah, that's you know. true. I've had to start writing at my standing desk, which I used to not do. But like, I can't like... I, I don't know. I, know. I start to get like my arm. I don't know. It's weird. 
Writer problems, writer problems. <laughs> um, Sarah, speaking of evil, we know from this book that you are not afraid to flip the script and assign some truly evil character flaws to the women in this book. Because, you know, there's the ultimate mean girl, Brittany, and her even meaner mom, Mrs. Davis. And you've got Ruth's mother, who is a child abuser. Now, is it just me? Or is this almost like a feminist manifesto that women can be monsters too? <laughs> hey! Rise up, women! <laughs> well, you know, I've written a lot of really bad men too, like, you know, The Wife Between Us and even yeah. some other books. So, you know, we got to pick on women a little bit here and there too, I guess, just to make it fair, <laughs> women characters. But no, I mean, I you know, I wanted to write um, about the complexities of of some of these women and yes you know the mean girl was maybe a little bit you know i said i never really write about people i know but maybe like a tiny bit based on some you know girls from my old high school uh -huh. <laughs> um no no, no right. i'm kidding um i actually had mostly really nice girls at my high school um but but you know just to um you know just to show i think that was probably more of like shaping the way Ruth was like she was somebody who was a survivor and she was a fighter and because she did come from certain circumstances that led people to view her one way or to treat her a certain way like she had that steely strength and that back backbone so I think that's really where those supporting characters came from mm. I always like to see where they grow out of. Like, what was the the little seed? And usually it's the other character. Like, those characters grow out of the other characters. But you just mentioned the wife between us. And we know that Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment optioned this novel, your previous New York Times bestseller. So we would love, if you can, to tell us the status of that and some of your other projects. Yeah, I mean, so that that one was wild. Um, we did find out that Amblin wanted to option the book. And the craziest thing was a few months later, maybe six months later, they asked if we would we would write the screenplay. They said they had had a lot of trouble oh, finding wow. writers do the right take on the screenplay. And so I remember Greer and I looked at each other and we're like, uh, sure. And then we promptly Google, how do you write a screenplay? <laughs> no idea. And they're like, well, first you're going to pitch it to us, of course. And we're like, well, naturally, we're like, Google, how do you pitch a screenplay? <laughs> That's great. It ended up just being a great experience. We worked with this woman named Holly Barrio um, over at uh, Amblin, and I think she's truly one of these women who wants to lift and support other women. And so, you know, she would say, whatever you need. We'd be like, can we read all these scripts, you know, Gone Girl and, you know, whatever. And she'd send us all the scripts. And, you know, we would write a draft and send it to her, and she'd give really thoughtful, careful notes. And, you know, just this, this extraordinary down to earth, hardworking, smart woman. It is such a great, like, first encounter with Hollywood and with, with writing That's scripts. Awesome. So, um, yeah, that was great. I, I absolutely loved writing it. And after the strike, um, because none of us are writing scripts now, you know, I would love to go and continue to do uh, more of that. Um, because it's, it's just like reimagining and retelling your book from a different way, because our books are all around, you know, 300, 400 pages. I don't know, I feel like Mary Kay, maybe some of yours are like a little bit thicker than that because you write nice, thick 
juicy books. Um, but, but, you know, then you've got maybe a hundred pages of a screenplay and a lot of that is white space. Like they are like, you know, the margins and, you know, the dialogue is set off with, you know, big white blocks. So you really have to like channel it all down and you're also telling it only visually and auditorily. So you're losing, you know, your character thinking, you're really having to show exactly what's going on. And that was kind of a fun creative challenge too. Um, but anyway, the, the screenplay and the book have, they keep upping the option. Um, we finished it shortly before COVID and then everything kind of shut down. So fingers crossed, um, they renewed the option. That's yeah, awesome. I was in the car with you. We were in Richmond for the um, Junior League book and author thing. And I think I, we, I think you guys got the call in the, in the car on the way to the um, author party. And they're like, oh, we're going to talk to Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> and and we Sarah, we need to tell you. That, yeah, but Mary Kay wasn't jealous or envious mm -hmm. or nothing. She was just I tried to trip them, but so it didn't cool. work. <laughs> Sarah, we have we really enjoyed talking to you tonight. You've been great. Before we let you go, could you tell everybody where they can find you online and on tour? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love interacting with readers on social media. So I'm on Instagram. Luckily, I have a very unusual last name, Pekinen. Um, Facebook, Sarah Pekinen. I just inched my way into TikTok. Be nice to me there. It's a little terrifying, um, but I'm doing my best on TikTok. And then, yeah, I have all information about tour stops and anything and everything else you could ever want to know about me at sarahpekinen.com. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you all for the great Thank questions. You. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. All right. Well, we are so excited to get to ETAFRUM, but first, a few quick messages from us. If you're not signed up for our weekly email newsletter yet, make sure you head over to friendsandfiction.com to sign up so that you're looped in on all our updates. We include exclusive Q&As with our guests, which always cover way more than we can get to on the show. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. You get a very full picture of the author. So make sure you're subscribed. You won't miss a beat of that. And all four of us are packing our bags, baby. <laughs> we've, got, we've got reindeer antlers and outfits we can't talk about yet and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And we're all headed to Westminster, Maryland together on October 4th to celebrate the launch of a book you might've heard about Mary Kay <laughs> Andrews book, bright lights, big Christmas in grand friends and fiction style tickets for our live theater event are on sale now through a likely bookstore a likely story bookstore, but be careful because there's also an unlikely story bookstore, mm -hmm. but you want a likely story bookstore mm -hmm. in Maryland. Oh, yeah, yes. Right. Because the other store is Jeff Kinney's store, right? Yeah. Yes. And it's amazing too. When, when awesome. I got big props a few years ago from little Will when he was like when massively into Wimpy Kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Also, we love reminding you about our Friday podcast because it's so incredible. We've had some very cool guests. We always post a link to the newest episode on Facebook and Instagram, or better yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and then you'll get notified with each new drop. On the most recent episode, Christy and Ron talked to Nina Simon. Notice how I didn't say Nina Simone. 
Good job. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> About her new book, Mother Daughter Murder Night, which just uh, was made the New York Times bestseller list today, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was because of us. Um, yes, it, for sure. Yeah. And coming this Friday, Patty and Ron will be talking to Ruth Watson about a right worthy woman. All right. Now it's time for our next guest, Etoff Rum. The daughter of Palestinian immigrants, Etoff was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. She is a Master of Arts in American and British Literature, as well as undergraduate degrees in philosophy and English composition. The dog, she also runs the Instagram account Books and Beans at Books A-N-D Beans. And she is a Book of the Month Club ambassador, showcasing her favorite selections every month. That's cool. She teaches, I know, isn't that so cool? I always look. She teaches undergraduate courses in North Carolina where she lives with her two children and actually has a store called Books and Beans. Mm -hmm. Her new novel, Evil Eye was just released earlier this month, and it was a book of the month pick for September. Very cool. All right, Juan, can you bring her on, please? Hi, Etoff. Hey. Hey. Hi, Etoff. We're so excited you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Okay, so I just tell you guys something. So I looked back because it feels like the last time you were here was like not that long ago. I mean, I really feel like it was kind of yesterday. And I looked back, and notably, because Etoff and I both live in North Carolina, it was episode number 23, which oh, wow. if that doesn't mean anything to you, that was that's Michael Jordan's number. So that's a big number in the state <laughs> of North Carolina. Yes. Um, and now we're on episode 185, not to mention wow. umpteen million podcast episodes. So it was a wow. long time ago. Yeah. Wow. wow. Congratulations. <laughs> you ladies have been busy. <laughs> So crazy. But anyway, I actually thought it was most cool that it was episode number 23. I was like, that's really neat. It's like our North Carolina episode. Anyway, so we are so excited to have you today. And your stunning new novel is about a Palestinian American woman who has an argument with a racist coworker and gets put on probation for it. Her Palestinian mother claims that all the trouble that has befallen Yara is because of an ancient curse on their family. Yara doesn't think she believes in curses, but even still, the proclamation leads her to examine and explore her childhood and doing a deep dive to figure out why her life as a mother and a professor, a life her foremothers could only have dreamed of, has left her feeling so empty and unfulfilled. So that's just a little bit about what this book is about. Could you tell us a little more? And could you tell us what it's really about? Yes. Oh, well, first of all, that was a lovely description. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's always hard to give that one line elevator pitch, as you all must know. So That's so it is, but and in reading the script, like the questions were so easy because I had like a million things to ask you, but I was like, okay, how, how do I sum up the book? But, like, <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's limiting beliefs that potentially can harm us in our own life and figuring out what those are. And it's a journey of self-awareness for this woman who has grown up her whole life believing that she should be a certain way based on her society and culture and the expectations that have been put forth on her as a mother and as a woman and as a daughter of immigrants. And finally, channeling into her inner voice and her inner truth, figuring out, figuring out a way to 
make connection with herself in order to figure out what she truly wants as opposed to what she should want or what she thought she should want based on society. And so that's really at the heart of this novel. And I think that any woman can really relate to this. And so it was really interesting for me as a writer to delve into this without also looking at my own life and examining it. Ooh, yeah. Well, speaking of that, you <laughs> lie. Uh, you that you just gave me like an on ramp. Like like, yeah, exactly. She wanted the script. I know. <laughs> to go. I'm just taking that on ramp you gave me because Evil Eye is about the daughter of Palestinian immigrants who grew up in Brooklyn, and she moves to North Carolina. She's balancing work, motherhood, societal expectations, like you just pointed out. And I can't help but notice that you were also raised in Brooklyn by Palestinian immigrants and now live in North Carolina. As I often say, we only have our own compost pile to work with. So are these basic demographics the only similarities between you and Yara? Or did you use your experience to help shape hers? Or did it go the other way around? Did her experiences help shape you? Wow. I re- you ladies are on a roll tonight with these questions <laughs> and the way that you just phrase things. I love it. I think it's a mixture of the two. So, of course, mm. obviously, um, I'm a Palestinian and so are my protagonists in both of the novels that I've written. I feel an immense privilege and a responsibility to shed light on uh or to just represent and give voice to these women from my community. And so I don't see myself writing about other minorities because I feel like I really owe a responsibility to Palestinian American women and Palestinian women. Um, In terms of Brooklyn and North Carolina, actually, I really wanted to play with the idea of North versus South as someone Ah. who was brought up in the North and then migrated to the South. The cultural similarities and differences felt like something that I could really play with, especially since Yara comes from a very sheltered community. And so she starts making these assumptions that, well, the North was very diverse and very liberal and just this big world. And even though she was raised in New York, she was very sheltered and so she never truly considered herself a New Yorker. And she had hoped moving to the South, a place where she had associated based on reading books by Toni Morrison, Flannery O'Connor, and all of the her favorite Southern writers, she just assumed that it would be more conservative and more similar to Arab culture in terms of like the love of food, the love of big families, the emphasis on tradition. And so I thought it was really interesting to play with these ideas of how immigrants or daughters of immigrants can sometimes feel a sense of comfort and and familiarity with Southern tradition. Oh, I I highlighted that in the book. I thought that was so striking when you said that, like that um, I hadn't really thought of that before, that comparison, but there really are kind of those similarities of that tradition and what you pass down. And like you said, even the food and the tea, and you mentioned the tea, like the sweet tea and the hot tea. and the- <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's ritual. It's the ritual around yes. family and yes. gathering yeah. and yeah. yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, and of course there, I could have said it in Detroit, and then had her move to Georgia or something. But I just did 
can feel like going through all that trouble. I love North Carolina. <laughs> I love the Tar Heel State. And I said, why not, you know, showcase it? And then I I like Brooklyn. And yeah. I thought that it would be a little nod to my earlier readers of A Woman Is No Man um, that, you know, these, these are, this is, I'm still talking about this very dark world. And mm, yeah. I thought that if I said it someplace else, then I'm making this assumption that all families are dark and this is happening to all Palestinian families. And it's really just one particular section of these, of this society. One, you know, some families, it's not a representation of all Palestinian Americans, just some. And I thought keeping it in Brooklyn might like give the readers a little bit more food for thought, like, hmm, this doesn't sound that different than a woman is no man. Is this just a kind of continuation of that conversation? Interesting. Oh, I love that time. Yeah. So toward the beginning of the novel, there's this very interesting scene where Yara is scrolling mindlessly through Instagram, wondering why she even bothers. So you wrote, with every post Yara uploaded, she felt an unease wash over her, a desperate need to prove herself, prove that she was happy and thriving despite what happened, despite what they thought her life would look like. So she does end up posting a beautiful smiling photo of her girls, despite the fact that in reality, we know that she's not really feeling so great at this point in her life. This is, of course, an interesting commentary on social media, but in a larger sense, and I think you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about the um, the meaning behind the book too, this interaction felt like a commentary on her life. So as a Palestinian-American woman, the expectations on her to be perfect, to be the perfect wife, mother, housekeeper, cook, daughter-in-law, social participant in Palestinian-American society, and also this beautiful stylish object of affection for her husband, all while holding down the job. Like that's pretty crushing. That's a lot of work uh, on her shoulder, yeah. right? I know. I, I'm stressed can't out. Can't even really about say it. it all. <laughs> I know. I can't even get it out of my mouth about how lot. it feels. Yeah. Um, so is there meant to be a larger message here about what she lets the world see and what she's really feeling inside? And maybe a message that um that applies a little bit to all of us. Oh, yeah. I mean, I need to take you all with me on book tour because your questions (laughs) (laughs) and the way you articulate yourselves is just so beautiful. So, yes, (laughs) absolutely. To me, Evil Eye was about all the ways in which not only women are expected to act, but also all the ways in which we as a culture have been kind of encouraged to perform and to show up as a certain version of ourselves, despite what the true reality of the situations that we are facing or the true reality of our mental illness or our mental condition. And so it's not just, it was my way of hoping that the readers would self-reflect on the ways in which perhaps we all, despite our limitations in our own race, religion, ethnicity, despite that, in some way, I think we can all relate to Yara. We can, we can, we've have all been there where we've been mindlessly scrolling and then attempting to put on a facade despite any emotions that we are currently dealing with. And so it just was very natural to me to center social media, especially since I did write this novel during COVID at a time where there was really nothing else to do, but perform online in order to stay relevant, in order to find some sense of connection, in order 
to feel seen. And sometimes that performative nature of our use of social media really hides like really darker truths about ourselves. It's so true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Etoff, Time Called Evil Eye, a complicated mother-daughter drama. So we've got two mother-daughter dramas tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very different, but very different ones. Yeah. <laughs> it looks it, it looks at the lasting effects of intergenerational trauma and what it takes to break the cycle of abuse. Can you talk to us about how you incorporated both the in, intergenerational trauma and maybe even a little bit of ancestral memory into this book? Yes. So the novel is a mixture of journal entries that encompass Yara's memories of Palestine and her grandmother and food and her mother and her childhood mixed in with present day Yara, the adult who's trying to navigate her life as a wife and a mother and an artist. And to me, everything about Yara is a product of the trauma that has been passed down in her lineage and in her ancestry, dating all the way back to the Palestinian the occupation of Palestine, the Israeli occupation of Palestine in 1948, where her grandparents were actually forced out of their home and live and now live and continue to live in refugee camps, refugee camps where her own parents were raised and where her own parents had to escape from in order to come to America. And so there's this constant feeling that despite the fact that she has escaped uh, such a violent poverty filled life and traumatic life that somehow that trauma is still inside her body and is still mm. a feeling that she cannot escape from. And so she is journaling her way through these emotions throughout the novel. And I really wanted to make a clear distinction or not a clear distinction, but I wanted to talk about the ways in which despite the fact that we are living really abundant, beautiful lives in the present moment, a lot of our emotions and our thoughts, our hardwired beliefs and reactions that are passed down from our families. And if those families come from um, minorities or demographics that have been underprivileged, underserved, and just have a lot of trauma in their DNA, that that is something that you, you will end up seeing in your adult life and having to confront and heal. And that's really the journey that Yara is on in this novel. You know, we're, we're all looking at that incredible, it's just such a mesmerizing cover. Yes. Um, tell me about, is there a reason the evil eye is blue? So uh, first of all, I want to take this time out, to, this time to shout out Lauren Tamaki, who honestly gave me the most beautiful cover I could have I could not have asked for a better cover it's just so beautiful the evil eye is blue um so the Hamza the evil eye has always been blue like no matter oh. where you go it's not something that I made up right. it's it's just the tradition of the evil eye it's a literal eye and you wear it as a way to like ward off any evil or envious glance or harm that's been like subconsciously or consciously put upon you by others. And, and so it's just a symbol of protection. 
So many cultures believe in the evil eye, right? Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, I went to Greece this summer and I thought, oh yeah, Arabs and the evil eye, they're obsessed. And then I went to Greece and they have evil eyes (laughs) everywhere. Everywhere. And I thought, wait, what? I thought it was just an Arab thing. I was shocked (laughs) that it is so so much more universal than I thought it was. Oh no, Meg put in the comments. Yeah, Meg put in the comments. Yeah, Italians totally believe in the evil eye. Yeah. Probably Irish do too. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, um, Itaf, you write something so beautiful here. Well, you write so many beautiful things here, but something that stood out to me that I just wanted to ask you about. You wrote, not for the first time, she wondered if art was something you could even teach the same way you taught science or math. The rules of math were concrete, but with art, the locus of creation lived within the artist. The rules, wise critiques, they were all arbitrary. How could you begin to capture its essence, let alone transmit it to someone else? And that's something that I think we've discussed on this show here before. You know, how much of art can be taught and how much of it is born within us? And so I'm interested what your opinion is on that. Well, thank you for reading that out loud to me. I forgot that I wrote it. So it's <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah, to hear yeah. It, it's, it was really great jumped out. I think that art is inside all of us. I don't believe that there are artists and then there are non-artists. I think everyone is an artist at heart. And the difference is that some of us can channel that art artistry within us and the divine. So to me, art is the divine, the, you know, the master, the universe, the flow, and you can tap into it as the deeper that you know yourself, the more you are willing to look inward and to give yourself that space to access that part within you. That's how you create, that's how you create art. And so it's really hard to teach someone that, like to teach someone how to not make art, but really how to lock in within themselves. And that's something that I found as someone who never knew that I, like, I never knew that I was an artist. I was always a training to be a teacher. I love to read. I love to teach. And so it was only when I started writing A Woman Is No Man that I accessed a part of me that was so divine that I never knew was there. And it was because I had stopped to listen to myself and, and express myself. And that's really what art is. You can express yourself in so many different ways, but it's giving yourself the permission and listening to that part of you. And I think that's the that's what you really can't teach. It's it's something that each of us has to figure out on their own. Yeah, good point. That's so I feel like I awesome. want you to go to every writing class in the country. Just give that five minute spiel and leave. That's it. Just, <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's do it. We I can mean, all go together. <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen to that whole, like the way you articulated that is the way I would want to articulate it, but never really have that. That was beautiful. That was Thank you. Beautifully said. Okay. And so as someone who is a teacher and a writer, could you give us a writing tip tonight? Selfishly, like for me, it's really for me, but. <laughs> and me. For the audience. (laughs) For me. So um, something that I have found to be useful lately is I've been completing by morning pages by um, 
Have you guys ever read, uh, I think I have it here, The, the Artist's Artist Way. Artist Way by Ju. I actually bought this for someone, but it's by um, Julia Cameron. And she I recommends- I've done it three times, big front to back, at least. Yes, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. So I've been, I think that completing those morning pages really, so it's three pages. You write three pages of writing, no matter what, every single morning. And it just really helps you clear your conscious and articulate yourself in a way because you're getting all the baggage out of the way first thing so it allows you to lock in to that creative part of yourself and achieve flow but aside from doing the morning pages my biggest tip that I will die with is to discipline yourself and to write every single day no matter what no matter whether you feel like it or not, because it's a muscle that you really have to exercise. And the discipline to me is so important because it's not really about what you manage to achieve. I mean, you all know, like there are some days when you sit in front of a computer for eight hours or four hours or however long you can manage to sit. And it's just a shitty day. Like you, Mm -hmm. nothing, it's just not, nothing's coming out. Mm -hmm. And then there are days where you're just in that state of flow, but it's training your brain to do what you say you're going to do that to me has allowed me to reach my goals because I trust myself to show up for myself every day at whatever time that I say and to do what I said I was going to do. And you build a sort of like respect with yourself that then transfers to the page and you, you then get a more confident voice because again, it's not about what you're producing. It's about the relationship that you develop with yourself that then allows you to be the type of artist or the type of creator that you want to be. We need to bookmark this guys. That was really good. (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, Etaf, we want to talk to you all night, but unfortunately uh, we know you probably have other things to do. So before we let you go, will you tell our viewers where they can find you on the road on online in the coming weeks? And I will say we've had a bunch of people chiming in saying that they're coming to see you in Winston-Salem this weekend. So we know you'll be at bookmarks this weekend. Awesome. Yes, I will be at bookmarks this weekend, but for a list and I'm excited. Come say hello. I love, aside from writing, my favorite part is connecting with readers and just hearing, hearing with how they felt about my work and how it resonated. So if you'd like to reach out to me or just learn about more about where I'll be, check out my Instagram and Facebook pages. I'm very active on Instagram. So if you want to DM me or tag me in a post, I will do my best to respond to you. And thank you to everyone who's reading right now. I'm really excited. And thank you, ladies, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been such a treat to have you again. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your time with us. And to all of you out there, please make sure to check out Evil Eye. You will absolutely love it. And um, thank you again for being here, Etaf. And we hope you have a great uh, event this weekend. And we hope to see you soon. Yay. Thank you, ladies. Thanks, Etaf. Bye. All right, everyone. Don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We will be back next week to celebrate something really big and exciting. Huge. 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 (laughs) The launch episode of MKA's Bright Lights Big Christmas. We have such a fun episode in store for you, and we cannot wait. 
you know, it's always a good night when we have a launch. So yeah. we're in rare form always. <laughs> so thanks so much for being with us. We will see you next week and good night, everyone. Good night, good night everyone. Good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.